Hello and welcome to another episode of Film Exploration with Ash Hurry and today I'll be talking about the 1995 film Crimson Tide. Directed by the late Tony Scott and starring Gene Hackman, Denzel Washington, Viggo Mortensen and also the late James Gandolfini. Submarine movies are usually a sub-genre of a film and the entertaining thing about them is they create this enclosed kind of claustrophobic experience as you assume a majority of the film will take place in this tight spaced environment now the experience is the key fundamental reason why we go to the movie or we watch a movie at home we need to escape we need to share our time with an imagination or vision of an auteur and let them steer this ship or sub for a few hours while you lose yourself in this narrative now, I've heard many people make rash assumptions and not gone to see a movie because of its certain genre or subgenre, or what they've read or heard in a review or someone said to them. And I guarantee you, you're not allowing yourself to watch movies for the right reasons. You need to allow yourselves to be lost in the film. You're there for the experience. Now, I've watched films from every genre, from a handful of countries, made from different cultures, and no matter what the review or no matter what my friends say, no matter what I've read, I will make the decision on my own. I have a backbone to not trust someone else's opinion or comment, and I will not allow myself to be denied that experience. Because the whole point of watching a film is that experience. And it doesn't matter if it's a negative experience from, let's say, watching a Lars von Trey film or Gaspar Noir film, or watching a rewarding experience or gaining a rewarding experience from watching a film like Shawshank Redemption or It's a Wonderful Life. You have gained an experience, a memory you hadn't before. Now, unfortunately, I'm in an era where people do not really care about films the same way I do or the same way they used to. They need to have it on in the background or they need to have it on while they're on their phone or they need to know the ending. They need to know a certain star is in it or they need to know it has a twist for them to watch it. And there lies every part of the problem in this new era of watching films. Go where the film wants you to be and for that I believe a subgenre like submarine movies have the perfect opportunity to take you on a journey. We need this classic Hitchcock mentality. He would not let anyone in the movie the second the credits started. I share the exact same mentality. People not pausing movies when going to the bathroom or making a cup of tea or talking throughout parts of the movies or looking the film up during the film. It's almost impossible to watch a film without any distractions unless you're at the cinema. Even then, people chill on their phones. Try and do it. Watch a film straight without any distractions. Enjoy the experience, the journey. But obviously, the older you get, the harder it gets. Commitments or kids or your job gets in the way. But if you chose or you're choosing to sit down and watch a film, do it properly. Well, that's my mini rant over. And I hope my discussion of this classic will entice you to see this film if you haven't already. And if you do watch it, make sure you do it with no distractions, please. In fact, you should do this with every film you watch. The reason I'm saying this, the reason I'm not ranting for the hell of ranting, the reason I am ranting is because I don't really want people to make the same mistake I did when I was 15 and to judge a book or film by its cover. I watched this film at 15 and found it to be utter boring. And I watched it at 17 and I, I sort of liked it a little bit more. And the more and more I watched it, the more I understood what they were trying to do with this movie. And when I watched this film in one full sitting without any distractions, I found this to be an instant classic up there with one of my favorite movies and it was a good lesson i learned about perspective most films i don't like i try and revisit it and watch it again to explore why i didn't like it what happened when i first watched it you know was there distractions why why didn't i enjoy it 
This film, like a fine wine, was one that aged gracefully. Submarine movies have been around for a while, since the early 1900s, usually depicting submarines in a somewhat credible uh, credible story about uh, World War One or World War Two, or sometimes even the Cold War. I mean, you've got great films like um, The Enemy Below, Torpedo Run, We Dive at Dawn, Hostile Waters, uh, Sea Wife, Run Silent, Run Deep. These films were amazing uh, you know, stories about the uh, the sort of the harsh reality of World War One, World War Two, told from the you know the really confined spaces of a submarine, and you also have like purely just fictional um, movies. You know, the Jules Verne adaptation of Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, telling the story of the re- the really well known fictional character of Captain Nemo, or James Cameron in The Abyss, creating this sort of same sort of narrative evolving around an underwater facility, making contact with aliens. And his, in fact, his ex-wife, Catherine Bigelow, uh, even attempted a submarine movie in 2002 called uh, K-19, The Widowmaker. You might have seen it. It's got Harrison Ford in it. It wasn't really memorable. It wasn't really a good movie. I mean, it was okay, but it was, um, I mean, it was all right, but it was definitely a stepping stone in her career. The narrative of a submarine movie usually explores, you know, the psychological conflict of the crew and this idea of this unseen enemy, which is outside or anything outside the submarine. And it's the reason why Jaws was so terrifying at the time. It was because you never saw the shark until the end. It was the idea of fear feeding your mind of what was beneath that water. And water, the element, is very good at this game. As beautiful as it is, it also offers a deadly result if it's not respected. I mean, the fear is tenfold in this subgenre of a submarine movie because everything outside the sub is considered the enemy. And that's usually the case of all the most of the 150 movies that have been made about submarines. The idea that this element is threatening to crush the hull because of the sheer pressure of the water or fallen terrain or sea monsters or more realistically human enemies. So it, it comes down to the fact of just a sheer sheer fear of what's outside the sub. And this submarine acts as this this safety net now obviously inside juxtaposed with the outside reality you have the inside reality and inside you have this crew who must rely on each other to stay alive by working together and it brings this nice warmth atmosphere of trust and brotherhood and to achieve their mission and you're really with them you're there the whole way and the only real conflict that can brew inside is something captain bly like like a mutiny or a fire or some kind of divergence amongst the ranks and this is exactly what happens in crimson tide so tony scott opens up this film with this on-screen text superimposed with the black screen where it's usually on there for an intense added effect usually the text that you see before a movie are biblical passages to add a sense of enigma to where the movie might be going But in this instance, Tony opens up with a fact that reveals itself bit by bit, where the importance of it is emphasized by the the beautiful Hans Zimmer score. So the passage reads as follows. The three most powerful men in the world, the President of the United States, the President of the Russian Republic, and the Captain of a U.S. nuclear missile submarine. The movie opens with this high possibility of a Russian civil war, which initiates this immediate action of the U.S. Navy. And funnily enough, the U.S. Navy didn't actually want anything to do with this movie because of the mutiny aspect of it. Anyway, with this realistic fear of nuclear fallout, the USS Alabama, which is the name of the submarine, is basically the first and last line of defense and it has the option and capability of launching a nuclear weapon which is quite a scary thing so after the movie sets this scene of this problem in russia we introduce the captain ramsey played by gene hackman who will be leading the crew 
inside the submarine. Obviously, well into his 50s or 60s, a man we know has plenty of naval experience, clearly feared and respected by his crewmen, very tough exterior presence and seems very blunt. And you get all this with the exchange he has with Denzel Washington at the beginning of the movie. Now, Denzel Washington, who plays Commander Hunter, comes in as a first choice replacement for his XO, who is off duty due to appendicitis. Um, XO is basically the executive officer. He's basically the the uh, second in command of the submarine. Now, from the dialogue between the two characters here, which is basically another interview, uh, an interview of the XO role, and also for us as the audience to know who Commander Hunter is, and we end up finding him to be the exact polar opposite of Captain Ramsey's persona. He's well-educated, clean, smooth. He's just graduated from Harvard by the book but very well he hasn't had really much naval experience and this dialogue however very harmless starts in motion this relationship and almost invisible tension between the two and the more and more scenes they share together we establish a rise of tension and friction between the two which is hidden away by their their steel exterior to maintain leadership and hierarchy in front of the crew now the story continues for the rest of the movie obviously in the submarine where eventually the guards come down between hunter and ramsey when a vague eam comes through fragmented eam means um, emergency action message which is like their only contact from the outside now, it's half damage and the message, which could be interpreted to launch the nuclear warhead or not launch, causes a difference of opinion between Captain Ramsey and Commander Hunter and therefore sets a conflict with the entire submarine and eventually causes this mutiny. The amazing thing about this movie is the inevitable clash between Denzel and Gene Hackman that you can see building up throughout most of the film and it finally comes to blows halfway through the movie. It's an acting masterclass from these two A-listers and it's so hard to keep your eyes off them whenever they share the screen in this movie. Every piece of dialogue between them, even at the start, breathes an atmosphere of unease. The air is thick and you know something is brewing. We already know how Denzel's career went after 1995, established as one of the best actors out there, winning an Oscar for Best Leading Actor in 2001 or 2002 for Training Day, which I do not think he actually deserved, but that's just that's for another podcast. He already won a Best Supporting role in 1988, I think it was, for Glory, the Civil War movie with uh, Matthew Broderick. And so Hollywood already knew, Hollywood and audiences already knew that this Denzel Washington guy was going to be big. And this is what makes this character more relatable. It somewhat mirrors their respected careers. Both actors of their generation meeting at different points in their lives. It's like the young upcoming heavyweight fighting the almost retired undefeated heavyweight now gene hackman of course being the undefeated heavyweight in this analogy is coming off a long and esteemed career with the seventh from the 70s and winning winning an oscar for the french connection and then later winning a best supporting actor for his role in clint eastwood's unforgiven which was a great film and most probably most you know most normal people might just know him from playing Lex Luthor and Richard Donner's Superman and he's always been an actor of interest for me so it was quite hard to accept when he announced his retirement in 2004 now in my opinion Gene Hackman is up there with the likes of Robert De Niro and Al Pacino Al, strangely enough with Al Pacino as well um, he was actually the first choice from the studios to play Captain Ramsey but he turned it down which consequently meant that Brad Pitt walked away from the movie since the main reason he signed on for Denzel's role was to work with Pacino and I don't think they've actually worked together oh wait no 
Yeah, yeah. Last year they worked together on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Even though their scenes were very brief, they did work together last year. Speaking of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Tarantino was actually well acquainted with Tony Scott at the time of the production of Crimson Tide. Tarantino previously had sold him his first script, or one of his first script, which was True Romance, which um, Tony directed in 1993, which starred uh, Christian Slater and actually a young Brad Pitt in the movie as well. And this was two years. Uh, this was two years before Crimson Tide had come out. So obviously they'd known each other from um, working together then. And so when Crimson Tide was being worked on, Tony had asked Quentin Tarantino to do sort of a punch up of the Crimson Tide script, which meant he just add some flavor to it. You know, just you know, make it more attractive. Although he's not credited in the movie, um, he did have a really big part to do with the dialogue with some of the most memorable scenes on Crimson Tide. If you're a fan of Quentin Tarantino, you probably know what scenes I'm talking about if you've seen Crimson Tide. Um, from the Silver Surface scene, the list of submarine movies that Gandolfini goes through at the start of the movie, and of course, the subtle racist exchange at the end of the movie about stallions. And I think it was in GQ uh, magazine just after the movie came out that Tarantino said that Denzel Washington actually confronted him on set because of his use of the N-word in his movies. And I think since then, Denzel's later apologized to Tarantino. I think his daughter even ended up working with Tarantino on Django Unchained. So this movie obviously explores an amazing theme when it comes to hierarchy and order and stars of being a leader in the best possible way for its chosen environment. Now, according to the movie in the Navy, an exo's job is basically to repeat the captain's order and concur his orders and demand as a way of confirmation that he agrees. In the movie, during one of their many talks, Hackman even says to Denzel, that means we don't question each other's motive in front of the crew. It means we don't undermine each other. It means in a missile drill, they hear your voice right after mine, without hesitation. So with this, you understand the role and job of Denzel. And the good thing about this movie is you could probably take either side of this mutiny and you wouldn't be wrong or right. And there lies the conflict of the movie where up until the end, we find out who's right. But then at the very end of the movie, when they are getting debriefed, it's established that technically they were both right to do what they did, which ended up being a dilemma for the Royal Navy. Now, this is obviously fictitious, so it makes it so so much, in fact, that the real US Navy, like I said before, didn't want any involvement with this movie. So it makes a great movie and certainly provokes a jaw-dropping performance from the two main stars. Before I conclude to my central and last point, I must mention the supporting cast. We are introduced to debut roles in both Steve Zahn and Ryan Philippe, who we all know now are quite well-established actors in Hollywood. Ryan Philippe's role is actually quite brief, and he's only shown looking after a pet fish in a bowl, which in the film is a great metaphor of the realistic outlook on the men in the submarine. The fish is in its safety bubble while everything outside is hostile and kicking off. The irony of that is done on purpose, which creates a little smile to the audience members who catches onto this piece of subtle satire. And with some of the biggest supporting roles that really shine are the ones portrayed by Viggo Mortensen and George Zanzar, who respectively play the friends of the leads. Now, Viggo's character is first shown at Denzel's daughter's party at the start, establishing their friendship. And of course, we see George's character, who plays Cobbs, who has served with Ramsay for over 20 years and is always shown in frame on the side situated near Gene Hackman's character in most shots, which isn't done by accident. So later we find out that they're both forced to turn on their respected friends to side with the other, which adds more tension to an already tense atmosphere. The scene that stands out the most is when Ramsey reassumed commands of the vessel and Hunter, who um, played by uh, Denzel Washington, walks over to Vigo in a very calm and slow way and just stares at him, realising he's just sided with Gene Hackman instead of him. Vigo Mortensen in this scene just not being able to look at him in the eye and just a great piece of acting by Vigo with 
this twitching of his face as Denzel just comes to his face and says nothing. Gene Hackman um, basically does the opposite. He just spits out a piece of dialogue to Cobb, basically going, of all the people, and shakes his head. And the way they handle the betrayal of their friends is reflected of their demeanor and character throughout the movie. Calm and composed from Hunter and blunt and spiteful from Ramsey. This scene further emphasizes the weight on both the men's shoulder now their respected colleagues and more importantly their friends are against them, adding to this enjoy enjoyable conclusion of the movie. And this brings me on nicely to the end of the movie. I'm going to take a minute to explore the climatic scene of the movie now with Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman and where they find out where the, what the EEM says after the build-up of this severe conflict throughout the movie. Long story short, we're going to find out who was right. Hunter buys himself three minutes for this radio to get the EEM, three minutes. And in those three minutes, Gene Hackman and Denzel Washington produce a moment of cinematic magic orchestrated by Tony Scott and the uncredited dialogue of Mr. Tarantino. After the entire ordeal, the two men just sit down opposite each other, just staring at each other, counting down the seconds. We wait with him. We wait with them, in fact, the entire crew. And what I mean by that is that we are waiting for three minutes as well for this completed EAM and has the audience, we're there too, because it's done in real time. In fact, the last 60 minutes of the movie when they're in the submarine is done in real time, which is why at the start of this podcast I expressed my desire for you to watch this without any distractions because it's so rare for a film to do a big chunk of their movie in real time. I think 1917 did it last year of the entire movie um, done in one take and obviously in real times but movies nowadays usually have flashbacks and they have ellipsis which is a jump in time and just more more cuts in movies which cut time out to develop the story so it's very rare for a movie to have um, a real time effect for the audiences so this is a really piece of unique experience to have when you're watching the movie has the time follows them it follows you as well so the time is exact and that's something that um, shouldn't be taken for granted when you watch a movie now this confined homey atmosphere of the lads in the submarine mixed in with the movie playing in real time makes for a realistic and rewarding experience when watching the movie and we also know as much as the characters we have no idea who is right and who is wrong we only gain knowledge when the characters gain knowledge which is called dramatic irony when we know as much as the characters on screen so it escalates the viewing experience at home the entire crew acts as the audience as they are there surrounding their chosen leader with guns pointed at each other waiting for this verdict while the two men take the hot seat and wait for them for this for this message to come unfragmented it's just about these two now who is right nothing else really matters now and for those three minutes neither the the russians or the americans or the nuclear war that's about to happen or not happen not even the chain of command on the submarine it's just a standoff and we are here delivered with this piece of dialogue that I shall now read out to give some context of what I'll be talking about. Ramsey goes, Speaking of horses, you ever see those Lipanzania stallions? Hunter then goes, What? Captain Ramsey goes, From Portugal, the Lipanzania stallions, the most highly trained horses in the world. They're all white. Hunter then goes, Yes, sir. And Captain Ramsey follows with, Yes, sir, you're aware they're all white, or yes, sir, you've seen them? Yes, sir, I've seen them. Yes, sir, I was aware that they're all white. They're not from Portugal, though. They're from Spain. And at birth, they're not white. They're black, sir. And then Captain Ramsay ends with, I didn't know that. <laughs> but they are from Portugal. Some of the things they do defy belief. 
their training program is simplicity itself. You just stick a cattle prod up their ass and you can get a horse to deal cards. Simple matter of voltage. The clarification of Gene Hackman asking Denzel if he is aware that the horses are white is a subtle dig of trying to provoke him to u- by using a racist implication, however covered by this layered conversation about stallions. Now, this semi-racist reference and Denzel's response about the horses being born black is not a massive coincidence. We are fundamentally presented with a twofold suggestion in which the, for- uh, the first is a racial implication of the remarks made by Gene Hackman, and if they are indeed intended, regardless of our thoughts of the captain being racist or not. So the aim from looking at this dialogue and performance is to provoke Hunter for a reaction, to poke him with a stick on a certain level. And we know this because Ramsey asks Hunter again to clarify if he knew the horses were white for no reason. A simple clarification about the existence of the horses would have been fine, but he takes it a step further. And more significantly, it's an endeavour to offend and patronise him because of this concealed implication. The moment in the movie... This moment in the movie invites this sort of thick suspense once again by the two men merely uh, exchanging these few words. And right now, this is the moment where we find out who's right. And the thing is that Ramsey is 100% sure that he's right and that Denzel, intelligent as he is, should never have questioned his superior officer in this very instant. So if you look closer at this dialogue, he makes a dig at at Hunter. He's basically saying there is a correlation between the colour of the animal and it being the most trained horse in the world. And he adds that if it requires the right amount of voltage for it to be the best, which causes a little chuckle to himself. And both of these are individual references for a strict training regime to sort of achieve compliance. And it's obviously a reference in their current situation where Denzel, who is black, is not showing proper compliance, which seems to say that Ramsey is signifying that, A, he didn't have proper training or the training didn't have, uh, didn't, didn't take to him because he was black. But now Hunter will start getting this voltage after they get the info that Ramsey is, is so rightfully sure that he's right. And so this insult becomes, you know, it follows, is followed by a uh, threat. And if you look even closer, Ramsey actually doesn't fight the comment about the horses being born black, but merely suggests that with enough training and even proper voltage, even a black horse can be made to do what they're told with the right training. Again, a not-so-subtle layer of a racist remark. And you could interpret if that Hunter is proud, or he is proud, to add some knowledge to this white captain that they are born black. Adding this sense of white power is merely a myth, because the horses are, at one time, both black and white. And what really matters is the training, which had fundamentally produced the same results during this hard training. So Ramsey is obviously upset at Hunter for disagreeing with him throughout the whole movie, and he's basically implying here that with the right voltage that you can be where I am, still under the illusion that he's right. And this is what springs this heavily layered dialogue to become an insult to what has happened to Ramsey, and also with the talk about voltage and saying that you can't get a, you can get a horse to deal cards, implying that there will be consequences for Denzel, and that you will now obey him the way that he wants him to. So the whole conversation is about dominance through racial intimidation. And this scene is actually cleverly started when Ramsey is threatened by Hunter at the beginning of the movie when he reads his resume. And thus shortly after complimenting Denzel, he insults him right after. He goes, you're on top of my list. And then he quickly goes, but it was a short list. So it's an amazing piece of direction from from Tony Scott and the performances are what sells this scene and not to mention the hidden meaning behind this dialogue of Quentin Tarantino who again does not get credited for this movie. 
So for me, this movie for me is just a terrific viewing experience and I urge you to watch this film if you haven't already in all its glory. The experience is why we go see a film and the experience you get from this film is a roller coaster, tense, edge of your seat and you're watching two actors at their primes at different ends of the Hollywood spectrum go head to head in this 1995 thriller. But that's all about Crimson Tide and thank you for listening to another podcast of film exploration with Ash Hurry.